Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 3rd, 2021, a Wednesday. Yesterday, there was an election uh, or a series of elections in America where supposedly, I guess, the people spoke or the voice of a certain kind of person in the American democratic system. The result was that the, the races or these elections, according to the Washington Post, left the Democrats reeling. In some ways, it seems as if the election was as these things always are, a referendum on Joseph Biden and his agenda, and particularly his infrastructure plan. And the voters weren't particularly impressed with Biden's infrastructure plan, even though it's supposed to support the poor, uh, the working class who make up the majority of Americans. Um, according to the Times, uh, the Democrats are still pressing forward with the agenda. But it sounds as if the election, at least in Virginia, which is the most symbolic place, um, rested on education uh, rather than infrastructure. In other words, um, a certain kind of American spoke in this election. And as so often in American elections, it's not the voice of people who are, shall we say, living on the edge. There's a new book out this week called living on the edge, when hard times become a way of life, uh, by the scholar Celine Marie Pascal from American University. Um, and I'm pleased that Celine is joining me today from Maryland. And I thought, uh, Celine, we might begin with a comment in broad terms on why American democracy and American elections never seem to reflect the voice of what you call the people living on the edge. You're a, a scholar in the field, not just of, um, of politics, but also in language and society. Um, does it surprise you that people who live on the edge never seem to have much political capital, much of a political voice? Thank you, uh, Andrew, for that question. And thank you for having me on your show. Um, no, it doesn't surprise me. I and I imagine it doesn't surprise many of your viewers. Uh, as a sociologist, I understand this uh, in a particular perspective that starts with the, the framing of the Constitution, which gave you know really only six percent of the population the right to vote. So we are a country that never had it in mind that all people would be equally represented as part of an American democracy. And as time has gone on, we've seen corporations exert an extraordinary and disproportionate influence over politics, whether it is money in campaigns or um, sweetheart deals for politicians, all the way through to drafting legislation. We see that especially right now with Joe Manchin in the coal industry um, and also with cinema, who's connected to the pharmaceutical industry and both of them blocking the Build Back Better plan. So there is a way in which government is really working for the corporations that are making the wheels go round rather than for the people. 
I wonder what's changed in America, if anything. Um, we've done a number of shows on the 1930s, uh, famous books, of course, like Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by James A.G. Um, we also did a show uh, recently on John Steinbeck, uh, on his biography. Of course, he's the author of a, a remarkable novel, 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath, about the struggle of the working class. Right. Uh, coming to California, which had a huge impact on America. Um, in your mind, has anything changed since the 1920s over the last hundred years? Oh, well, of course, things have changed, right? So, but if you're asking about um, the power structures that are shaping existence for most people in our daily lives, I think that there is a certain power structure that has become much more deeply entrenched. Um, and that connects the dots with uh, racism and capitalism, um, colonialism. There are so many ways in which uh, there's been a doubling down of um, relations of power that have dominated the country for a very long time. We did a show recently with uh, the writer, the journalist, A.L. Powell, on uh, his new book, Dirty Work, um, Essential Jobs um, mm -hmm. and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. Uh, he's more of a journalist rather than an academic. But my guess is that your book, your new book, Living on the Edge, covers the same ground. Y your work is from the field. You spent time in Oakland, in, um, in some Native American uh, communities. What did you find from living on the edge? What is your message in this book? It was important to me to, to go to communities that have sustained levels of economic need for decades. And because I, I grew up with uh, food insufficiency. I grew up with a lot of struggle and have struggled with poverty at different points in my life. Uh, that's a long way behind me right now. And so I wanted to see what was happening in communities today. One of the things that surprised me and um, still surprises me is just how much money, how profitable poverty is. And I'm not just speaking about um, high rents or low wages, but that the banking industry has made, they make a fortune off of people who um, are, are limited financially. So they take out only, they're only qualified for high interest loans or payday loans, people who are relying on dollar stores for their groceries. There are so many ways uh, that lenders and businesses have moved into communities in very predatory ways, whether it's a medical loan now that people need to take out to fix a toothache, or it's the devastation of environments because the corporations are removing all of the natural resources and leaving the devastation of the environmental toxins to local communities to clean up. So there's so many, so many ways in which there's a collusion between government and corporations that are really working to keep people poor because it makes them a lot of money. So, Lee Marie, we, we've done a lot of shows about America and its new geography. 
we had the um, the Southern Californian writer Tom Zolnick on the show. He wrote a book about America. I've always quoted this probably more than any other any other quote from the hundreds of shows we've done. He writes, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Place is less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. The people, of course, who can't leave it um, are the poor, are the people you work about, are the people who have dirty work. Um, Did you find that in your book, Living on the Edge, that the people living on the edge are tied to geography in the way in which, for example, the coastal elites with their mobility aren't? I think there are a couple of ways in which that comes up. One is that um, I spoke to a man in Oakland who was ready to retire, but he couldn't retire in Oakland because it was too expensive, but he also couldn't leave because that was too expensive. And there was a tension for him about where to go because um, he was a black man who didn't want to go back to the South where his family was because of the racial politics that how different they are between California and where his family was from. It came up as well in Native American communities. So at Standing Rock and Wind River, Mm. people aren't going anywhere. That's they have been corralled onto the last bits of land that the government would leave to them. So that's, that's home. I have to admit that that got me into trouble. I did a show. I won't mention the name of the person. I did a show about that, about the struggles of native Americans um, a few months ago. And I mentioned that last year I drove through Northern Montana, drove through some native American communities. And I was really struck by the, catastrophic poverty in these communities. And the person I was talking to was very offended, thinking that I was making some sort of racist comments, which I don't think I was. I was simply observing what I saw. In your experience, in what you saw in these Native American communities, we've done another show actually on on Native American communities. Is the poverty there strikingly worse than the poverty in uh, other parts of uh, of America in places like Oakland? Um, certainly it's worse than it is in Oakland. In any community, there are this gradation, right? There are wealthier others and poorer others. And so you can always get into a bit of hot water by saying this, is a, this entire community is um, suffering because there are always people who are not, right? It's, it's a continuum. Yet the only place that I saw that matched the kind of poverty that I have come to expect on reservations was Appalachia, where mm. back in Hollers, there, the, the conditions look quite similar, quite similar. Um, and the difference there being what, you know, thousands of miles, um, a completely different social history, economic history. And yet these were these are all communities um, that have been abandoned, both in terms of the public conversation, certainly in terms of economics. The unemployment rates, the underemployment rates are absolutely devastating. We've talked, of course, about people, quote unquote, living in Oakland uh, or living in Appalachia. In Oakland in particular, I live in San Francisco. There are many people living on the street. 
Um, we've done a number of shows about homelessness in America. Here we have an image of a, of a woman, um, a homeless woman. Um, did your study focus on people who had homes to live in? Or how much time did you spend in these growing homeless communities in places like Oakland? Um, Andrew, I'm having a little trouble hearing you now. You've gotten very soft. I think that you just asked me about uh, yes, homelessness. Yes. I spent time with homeless people or people who were housed. Yes. Okay. So um, everyone that I talked to had housing. Everyone that I spoke to was was one person. You know, they were all working. Not all of them had jobs that paid enough or were reliable, but everyone was working and housed. And what's your sense of the different kind of poverty of people who are homeless? Does that require another book? I mean, is it a different kind of poverty from people living in their cars? In the Bay Area, more and more working people are, are, are living in their cars, living in other people's homes. That's right. Um, we used to associate people losing their housing when they lost their employment. And that's not really the case for, for millions now. There are so many people who are working and living in cars or tent communities. Because mm, if you think of just of Oakland, you would spend, what, um, three to $5,000 for a small studio apartment. You know, the rent has become so inflated as the tech industry moved from San Francisco into Oakland and completely displaced local, not completely, but is displacing the local residents and causing this incredible housing crisis so that there just aren't livable alternatives for many people anymore, even though they are employed. Celine Marie, uh, as I'm sure you know, the movie No Man Land won the Oscar for best movie last year. I had Jessica Bruder on the show recently, again, last year, actually, late last year. Uh, the movie is based on her excellent piece of reportage, uh, Nomadland. Uh, here we have some images uh, from the book. Um, you have some references in your book about this new class, what we call the precariat, people who are employed in many different places who have no real home. It's kind of the opposite of this geography argument. To what extent is uh, this new underclass made up of people um, who work many jobs? Is, it, is, is, is the word precariat a good sociological term to use to define uh, people living on the edge in America today? Absolutely. I'm not sure that I would call it an underclass simply because what's happened to the U.S. economy is that it's bifurcated. We have a small number of jobs that pay well, that are highly skilled and available to highly trained people, and a large number of jobs that are low skilled, low wage. And the, what had been the middle class has been shrinking over years until it's almost non-existent. We're almost completely bifurcated. Those middle class is incredibly small. So if you think of um, according to the Social Security Administration, 51% of people are earning $35,000 a year or less. That's pretty 
devastating when you consider also where the cost of living and what it what one needs to earn to be economically self-sufficient in any region of the country. It's a very depressing picture, Celine Marie. You paint very un-American and both in um, in how dark it is and how hopeless. But of course, there are fixes. Let's take a break. And then after the break, I want to talk to you about how to address this, how to how to bring some some justice into the situation in this deeply troubling situation. So we'll, so we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. And back to this question, Celine Marie Pascal, of what to do about the enormous inequalities of wealth. And, and, and you push back on the term, the underclass, I don't know what you call them, the new poor, the old poor, the poor. Um, what are we going to do about it, Celine Marie? Should we be just simply getting beyond capitalism? We've had uh, many shows, actually, about simply rejecting the idea of capitalism in any early 21st century America. Is there the potential from, for reform within the capitalist system? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I would use the term uh, the struggling class because that's the label that people that I spoke to used for themselves. Um, I've never met anyone who said, you know, oh, I belong to the underclass, right? Um, so it's my preference to use their language, which is the struggling class. In terms of where to go, the first thing we have to do is take a look at what it is that's actually happening. And I think that's where all repair has to begin with a kind of reckoning. What is it that's actually happening? And we have so much misinformation, disinformation, flat out 
uh, you know, mythologies about class and the economy that this book can be a bit shocking and a bit mm, hard to read if you're not familiar, if you're not close to people, because we tend to live in silos, right? If you are fairly comfortable in your life, you probably don't know people um, who are having trouble keeping food on the table. And if you do, they're probably not talking to you about it. So a kind of reckoning has to happen. And I hope that this book contributes to that process. Once that reckoning happens, we can begin a process of repair. And the people in the book mention quite a number of things that they believe will help. It's not a matter of making individual reforms. We're not going to reform this, reform that, but we need a globalized change to the economy, which requires a really profound change to politics. And that's connected to media. So there are a lot of these interconnected pieces. And I think that we can get to that by making the connections across communities that we start to recognize that the Joe Banchin is a, you know, is fighting against the interests of the people who elected him, right? The numbers of, I think the polls are somewhere between 62 and 64% of the people in the country support the Build Back Better Act, but in West Virginia, it's even higher. So those people know very well how hard it is to get by the poverty line. So many people in West Virginia are living at or below the poverty line. And that is connected to their vulnerability to the climate crisis, the intense flooding that's happening from storms. All of that is connected. And we need politicians who are going to fight for, for us, for do everyone. You have, um, do you have models of politicians? Would it be Bernie Sanders? Would it be AOC? Would it be figures standing outside traditional politics? Uh, when I asked the people that I interviewed if they saw anyone in politics now who would stand for them, stand with them, they said no. However, they um, almost to a person were very big Bernie Sanders supporters. And some pointed out to me that when Bernie Sanders was on the ticket in 2016, that voters came out throughout of Appalachia throughout um, poor communities across the country in support of him. But when he went off the ticket um, because he lost the primary to Hillary Clinton, they didn't turn out to vote at all. So I think um, there is a sense of that Bernie Sanders has been able to put his finger on the pulse of what it is that working people need in their lives. and. Somehow we can't get to that. Yes. An interesting debate, uh, Celine Marie, on my show about how angry people should be. I had the um, Southern California-based sociologist, Maisha Cherry, African-American thinker, um, a historian, a sociologist on the show, arguing that we need to be angrier, that we shouldn't reject anger. In your experience, in talking to these people, uh, the people living on the edge in your research, traveling around the country, how angry are you? Are they simply disappointed or mystified? Are they voiceless? How do they articulate their situation? 
I think, um, like most people, they cycle through being angry, despairing, hopeful. And it isn't so much that they are voiceless, but uh, people are not listening. So many people that I talk to are quite active in their own communities and creating support and care for one another when feeling really abandoned by um, the expectations they had for a good life in the United States. So uh, people working together in Southeast Ohio to create organizations that would give winter coats to children or provide after school um, places for them to wash their clothes during the pandemic. People, for many children, the school lunches were their meal for the day. And so they gathered together and created a meal system to help feed children uh, during the <coughs> pandemic when they weren't in school. There are so many local responses. Um, you saw, I could see that at Standing Rock as well, where people worked really hard to make sure that other Native American communities had resources that they need. Anything that they had that they could give, they did. Any way that they could raise or mobilize resources, they did. And I think that is the kind of spirit that we need. That's the kind of hope and caring that we want to see all of our communities embody. Uh, you mentioned earlier the environmental crisis. You touched on COVID. Yesterday, I had the very distinguished physician, Sandra Galea, on the show, uh, talking about the, the way to prevent the next pandemic is to recognize that we live in a systemic crisis, a crisis that you've outlined in this conversation of the way in which um, people are victimized in the medical system um, in the environment and above all else, of course, in the broad economic uh, system. How much has COVID compounded this crisis? Has it brought it in some ways, do you think, to a kind of political or cultural climax? Um, hmm. if, if I think about this just in terms of the people that I talked with, they didn't have health insurance before the pandemic. So that didn't, losing a job didn't change their state of being insured. They maxed out their credit cards, stood in line at food banks, struggled within communities to make ends meet. At Standing Rock, the government, the local tribal government used all of the federal funding they could get to continue to care for people, to keep their health insurance, to keep their paychecks, to keep them in their homes. So in a way, it wasn't, it was a deepening of a crisis. It wasn't a new crisis. When you think about the numbers of people working in meatpacking plants that were told they had to continue to work, regardless and that they had no protection against COVID. They were told essentially that if they didn't come to work, that there would be the possibility of more raids by ICE because so many of the people working in meatpacking industries are immigrants, many of them not uh, with documentation. So 
it exacerbated the kinds of inequalities that we've been living with, the rent crisis, the rent strikes. I don't think that we are anywhere near uh, what you call the, the climax of things. I don't think that, I don't think it's going to be like one big moment. Definitely everything is connected, the pandemic, the climate, the economy, but we're traveling. It's not a static process, right? We're all in motion and there is a chance to do something different. We just need the will and the cooperation of our leadership to make that happen. Yeah, I'm less optimistic than you that the leadership, particularly traditional Democrats, it's not going to come from the Republican Party like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, have any interest in profoundly reforming the system. Uh, we had Vanessa Veselka, the prize-winning um, fiction writer on the show. Uh, her 2011 book, uh, Zazen, has been re-released. Uh, and in that book, she imagines an American revolution. It was a rather farcical, sad one. But nonetheless, there are people committed to revolution. It, it Might that, uh, Celine Marie, might that be the only alternative? Are we back in 1917 in Russia? We had Fiona Hill on the show recently suggesting that America and Russia are very much alike now. Uh, I certainly can't see Democrats or Republicans solving the crisis that we're in. And I would agree with you, as all of the people that I spoke to, that neither party has ever had the interests of working people at heart. It's part of the way the whole system has been corrupted. So without doubt, um, you know, people on the far right are talking about an armed revolution and secession, and people on the left are saying, maybe with not so much violence, but seeing that this is an unsustainable system. Perhaps where I'm situated is a little bit different in that I don't think we can afford the luxury of despair. So it's not a situation that I can look at and see easy lines of hope, but that despair will get us exactly where we are or worse. There's That's a luxury that we can't afford at this moment in history. Well, I want to congratulate you, uh, Celine Marie, for doing, I guess it's almost like the, the dirty work of telling the truth about what's happening in America today. You're book is just out, Living on the Edge, When Hard Times Become a Way of Life. It's not cheerful reading, but I think it's essential reading. Uh, congratulations uh, on the book. You are sitting. You talked about Americans sitting. You're sitting, I think, in your home in Maryland at the moment. In addition to your new book, what else should people be reading, perhaps to make them more realistic about the situation or maybe even to cheer them up? What couple of books would you recommend uh, in November 2021 for our Lit Hub audience? I am a great fan of Chuck Collins, who wrote a book called The Wealth Hoarders, which is sort of the opposite side of what I'm working on. He's working mm -hmm. on how it is that wealthy people manage to protect their money from being taxed or even um, recognized, right? Being able to pass it along through generations. I loved the book uh, Dope Sick by Beth Macy. It's mm -hmm. now um, a film series that I have not seen. And for just good old escapism, I really love speculative fiction and anything by N.K. Jemisin will get me happy.
get me into my happy place. Well, I'm pleased that you have ways of making yourself happy because I'm not sure this book made you happy, Celine. Uh, but uh, it's an important book. I, 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 uh, and again, congratulations on it. Living on the edge when hard, time, when hard times become a way of life. This, Unfortunately, this story is not going away. If anything, it's getting worse, particularly if the Republicans come back into power. Um, so I, I'd love to have you back on the show and talk more about it. Uh, so Celine Marie Pascal, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book and keep fighting. We really all uh, respect and appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate yours as well. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.